This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here, and I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I've sort of been holding out on having my main man, Brad Gilbert, who, of course, uh, joins me at ESPN for so many years. We, Brad, will be able to talk about everything and anything as relates to tennis as we'll get together in the next week or so for the Western and Southern Open Cincinnati, which will be played this year at the U.S. Open location in New York, and then, of course, the U.S. Open. So we'll have plenty of time, BG, as you and I always do, to break down what's happening in the current world of tennis. But I want to get into how Brad Gilbert started in tennis. First of all, how are you, Mr. Gilbert? Well, nice to hear you, Patrick, and sounding so well and being healthy. Uh, we've had a lot of time off and looking forward to getting back. Um, I got started probably a lot like you did and so many other kids. I was the youngest of three, so I had an older brother and older sister that had just started. My dad, uh, believe it or not, uh, at about 30 years old, evicted a tenant. He had an apartment building in Oakland and found some tennis rackets with a few presses on them. Never seen or knew anything about tennis. And my brother was about seven and a half at the time. He says, okay, let's go play tennis. Well, let's, let's, so tell, let's, let's, yeah, yeah, let's tell people, Brad, what presses are, because most people, we hope we have a lot of younger viewers, presses are the things that sort of came around old wood rackets, correct? Yeah, it was like these clamps that right. like, <laughs> kind of keep the racket from bowing. There, it, it's like in the Stone Ages uh, of tennis. So, you know, my dad, I think, went to like the Encyclopedia Britannia to find out some information about tennis. He played a couple of times with, with my older brother and declared, that's it, we're playing tennis. Hmm. So I and, was and, three and, years old at the and, time. And your, dad, and, and, and your dad, Brad, had never played tennis himself. Never played tennis or knew anything about tennis, and this would have been in 1964. Uh, and he just literally declared, that's it, Gilbert's are playing tennis. So I wanted to play, and he said, no, you can't play yet. You're too small. And so I was very annoyed that they wouldn't let me play. Mm -hmm. So about three months later, and maybe I was, you know, three and a half or something like that, he drew a line on a wall in our basement that was about three feet, whatever the net was, you maybe made it three and a half feet. He goes, if you can make 30 balls in a row, mm -hmm. and then you can get on the court. Mm. And so I spent a lot of time on that wall. I was playing with like a Dunlop Max Ply that probably weighed 13 and a half ounces that was sawed off, mm -hmm. had a little grip. It took me about a month and a half you know, to get a good rally from a certain distance. And then I got on the court when I was about three and a half. I'm still, Patrick, 55 years later, still hitting on the wall. Yeah, you're still hitting on the wall. And you, 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 you showed me, in fact, during the pandemic, you showed this, you did this on your social media. If you can hit the spot, you know, a hundred times or whatever it was, a certain amount of time. So now, now I know, because I know you've always been into that, but I didn't realize that's how it started. Hit that spot. If you can control the racket, then you're going to get somewhere, aren't you? You know, and when you're in a basement, you know, there's not a lot of room to move around. So that's where you, you kind of learn it. It's a great skill to learn. You know, my kids say I don't have a lot of Zen. My Zen is kind of just 
hitting on the wall. I really enjoy just kind of just, you know, 15 minutes, all of a sudden, whether or not, you know, hitting some forehands, hitting some backhands, hitting some volleys. I really just enjoy hitting the ball. And I actually, you know, never felt at any point, Patrick, in my life, any burnout from hitting or dreaded hitting. I, I really enjoy hitting. And even now today, it's not like I'm goal-oriented. I just enjoy just trying to go out and hit some ball. Now, when you first started playing competitively, Brad, how old were you and how did, what, were your, what are your first memories of that, your competitive tennis? Uh, well, I got a story for you on this one. My first match, six years old, mm-hmm. and I thought I was ready to just, you know, storm through this tournament, eight and unders. <laughs> right. Uh, Alpine, you know, the um, Alp- uh, Portola Valley, like I think it was Alpine Hill. In northern in um, Northern California, you grew up just outside yeah, near Oakland. Stanford. Right, right, right. I go play first round, tricky lefty opponent. It's like, man, at six, you haven't played a lot of tricky lefty. Right. And the guy was about a foot taller than me, and he absolutely took me to the woodshed. Hmm. I was disheveled that I lose to some guy that was my age. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, that guy that was my age. I played all the way through the juniors. I got him about 15 times in a row after that loss because it really annoyed me. <laughs> that one stuck with you for but a while. But then he did yeah. get me back. Are you, can you believe this? That guy did get me back once on the pro tour. So I went all the way from playing hmm. this guy at six years old to actually losing to him, I think, when I was about 25 or 26 on the pro tour. And he played with two giant steel knee braces Lefty Glenn Landecker oh, sure. was my first opponent yeah. in my career. Didn't he play at Princeton? Glenn Landecker played at Princeton, I believe. Or was it Pepperdine? Um, Maybe Pepperdine. Yeah, you, you know what? I'm going to say higher learning, but he might have been at Yale. Uh, oh, yeah, I think he was at Yale. You're right. He was pretty he, – he had a decent run there for a while. I mean, he, was, he wasn't like he was, uh, you know, a challenger. But I, I mean, think he was, he a, he was a, top a top 100. Yeah. I'd say even top 50 for a cup of coffee. I could be selling him short. He wasn't bad, but I competed against him. But I tell you what, I took that loss hard. Um, and, and, you know, I remember my dad said, you, you got to learn from your losses. And I was like, I'd rather learn from my wins. But it, it, it did, you know, make me compete even more. Well, it, you certainly had a lot of wins because you got up. Uh, you know, people obviously know you now from our broadcasting at ESPN and from your coaching career. You coached uh, Agassi, you coached Roddick, you coached Murray. But uh, a lot of people don't realize that you were top five in the world. You got to number four in the world. And uh, so you had one heck of a career. And, you know, you've told me this story a few times, but I, I, I love this story about you going to college. You first started Foothill, which is in Northern California. And just talk to me a little bit about when, you know, your your later years in your junior career and then starting at Foothill, Pepperdine, and then onto the Pro Tour. Um, well, when I landed at Foothill, January 2nd, Patrick, 1980, you know, most people, when you go to a junior college, you know, the mentality is that I should be somewhere better mm-hmm. um, and that you're not going to be going places. And I, I had the great fortune of meeting the person who was the best inspiration of my tennis life, Tom Shivington. And the day that I met him there, um, 
he made me feel like I was at Stanford. He made me feel like I was at the most important place. Um, and somehow, miraculously, um, I don't know why, because my dad is 6'3", everybody else is decent size in my family. Maybe because I was playing so poorly in the 16s and 18s, God was a little bit, like, upset with me because of my, you know, sometimes anger on the court. He didn't <laughs> right. let me grow. Right. So when I graduated right. from high school, I was 5'7", a buck 15. Wow. Tops. Wow. And somehow I met Shiv, uh, and we had a great chemistry, and in about five-week period, I, I mean, honest to goodness, I grew about six inches in five weeks. Crazy. So then I went from about six one one twenty, but that seemed to really like change, like you know. And then I couldn't hit a backhand until I met Shiv. So he helped me with a couple of things, and he had such an easy demeanor about it. Um, and all of a sudden, guys that I could never beat, you know, for umpteen years, mm -hmm. it was almost like, what happened, or, or who were these guys? But, but um, Chib was the, the complete reason why, and chemistry so much uh, in, in coaching and had such a great, easy demeanor. Well, um, so, so you weren't like a, t uh, a highly rated or highly ranked junior. Obviously, you played a lot in Northern Cal. You were a national player. So in, you think it was just because of your size, um, you weren't one of the top juniors in the country, and then all of a sudden you get to Foothill, you go on to Pepperdine, and then you, know, you quickly go on to the tour. So things changed pretty quickly in a pretty short period of time, didn't they? Yeah, they changed for me, Patrick, in about three months. I rarely ever left Northern California. You know, I never played any international junior tournaments. I never even played like Orange Bowl or hardly any of the big tournaments. I played Kalamazoo three times, was 0-3 in my career, and never played at Kalamazoo College. Each time I lost first round at the high school. You know, so I didn't even, you know, make <laughs> wow. wow. So, you know, I was hardly recruited at all. But for some reason, though, honest, I mean – my dad always told me when I was nine, I didn't know what it meant. You're going to play Davis Cup and you're going to be a pro tennis player. So even when I was at Foothill, you know, I, I didn't really know what that meant, but I always felt like, you know, I was meant to play. Um, and I never really had any coaching uh, other than my dad, but he didn't really know anything about technique or anything. Um, and I was probably – too stubborn to make any changes. Mm -hmm. And then Shiv kind of subtly would tell me, if, like, if we could learn to hit over that backhand on the second day that I was at practice, you know, I think it would be really productive with your game. Or he might say, you know what, if we could learn to be a little, you know, more offensive with your serve, I think it would help you. So he would just make these little things. And then, okay, let's, let's spend after practice or the next week working on it. And, you know, all of a sudden, for the first time, I didn't say no. And the way he said it, um, and within three months, you know, winning is contagious. And you start getting confidence. You start beating people that you haven't. Um, and then within three to six months, then I started playing, you know, qualities of tournaments. And things started changing quickly. And that's, you know, what you always tell players when you're coaching, that, Things can change in this game, and it starts with your attitude and also starts with working hard.
Well, obviously, it sounds like that uh, Coach Shivington had a big effect on on you as a player, but then also you as a coach. And, uh, you know, you had incredible uh, runs with Agassi, with Roddick, then with Murray early in his career. And we could go on and on about about each of those relationships. But what I really want to get um, to with you, BG, because I've been thinking about this for a long time for my podcast. And uh, I thought that the only person that I could do it with initially would be you because there's nobody that can break down an imaginary match better than you. And I've been, you know, for a long time, I've been thinking about, okay, I want to try this for my podcast, but I need BG, I need Brad to do it with me initially. So here's the first match, and who knows, maybe we'll do this once a month, maybe we'll do it even on your pod. By the way, what's your podcast called? Because you just started one as well. Yeah, Winning Uglier with my son, Zach Gilbert, and it's about coaching, you know, trying to help club players understand how to maximize their game. And, you know, some fun stories, but it's definitely about coaching, something I'm really passionate about, what I got from my coach, Tom Shivington. Well, Winning Ugly is a name of your best-selling book, which was an unbelievable book. And by the way, Brad, as you know, you and I stay in touch during the last couple of months. I've been doing more teaching on the court than I've really ever done, even since I started working with my brother at our tennis academy. But I've been teaching not only kids, but tons of adults. So I feel like um, I learned a lot from you in breaking them in breaking down sort of the club player. And by the way, many of them say to me that your book has been a big part of their uh, tennis life. So you keep it up. We do. We, so winning uglier is right. the name of the podcast. I love it. Well, thank you, Patrick. And one thing about coaching, you know, seniors, I, I've been working with a guy for the last couple of weeks at a 4-0 level is you need to focus and get on their level because so many yes. coaches are thinking yep. higher levels, but, you know, trying to help them with their little strengths and weaknesses. And then I don't think about like somebody at a higher level when you're coaching it. It's like, how am I going to help them just with the little, you know, nuances in their game? No, no, totally. And that's exactly what I've tried to do with, um, with the people I've been on the court with. Okay. So here's the match. Okay. The two greatest male clay court players, uh, certainly in the open era, arguably of all time. Uh, and, and again, Brad can, can break down the strengths and weaknesses. So here it is. Bjorn Borg in his prime, Brad, versus Rafael Nadal, best of five, French Open final. We could, we could break down. Obviously, they've got to play with the same equipment. So we're not talking about you know Nadal playing with his Babolat against Borg with his wood racket. So first off, let's say they played with the wood racket. Borg, Nadal, best of five, who wins and why? Okay, this is an interesting question. Because Borg was maybe the first player of the 70s that played more of a modern game that you see today. You know, he played, well, you know, he wasn't a big guy about 5'11", buck 65, lightning fast. I mean, I mean, maybe like a Hewitt size, but I actually think, you know, he would have been a better mover than Hewitt. Um, big first serve, second serve, nah. You know, not, not as bad as mine, but, but that <laughs> might have been norm, the weaker part mine, of his game. Right, right. Um, I think that Rafa, you know, would need time. 
mm-hmm. to adjust to playing with a, a little wood racket because you probably would have never played with one or, you know, any type of. No, let's, well, let, let's, let's assume, let's assume for the sake of this discussion that Borg, uh, you know, Nadal grew up with a wood racket just the way Borg did. So let's assume he was totally comfortable with it. You know, obviously when you, when you watch old tapes of Borg, as I've done, I know as you've done, you'll see him. I mean, he was probably maybe the first guy that I've seen anyway that did sort of the buggy, you know, he'd do the buggy whip for him. You know, the you finish above his, his same shoulder as the swing. Now, a lot of the times, like you watched his match with Vilas from the, from the French Open final, you know, they're pushing the ball, pushing, pushing, pushing. It's super slow. But, you know, there are moments when you see Borg on the run when he's got to get to the ball quickly. Well, he'll do the little buggy whip forehand. So I agree with you. I think Borg's first serve is very underrated. And obviously, when he won all his Wimbledon, the first serve was a huge weapon, a big factor. So I give the edge on the first serve to Borg in the Borg-Nadal on with the Wood Racket matchup. Nadal has always tinkered with his serve, as you know. He's had some moments where he can serve well. His second serve's got a little more movement on it. But is that just because of the rackets? In other words, would his second serve be as weak with a Wood Racket as Borg's? I say yes. Um, well, his second serve wouldn't obviously be as good because he, he's also playing with polished strings. Now you're going to have to go to probably tight gut strings. Rafa Bigger at 6'1", 187. I think where the, the huge factor in the match with Wood Rackets would be court position. Rafa would dominate court position. Borg would play way far back, would hit a lot of balls short. You know, with high spin, where obviously back in the day, a lot of guys struggle with anything above their shoulders. Assuming Rafa, even with a wood racket, wouldn't struggle as much with balls above his shoulder, I think that he would just pound away with the forehand and have Borg stretch back. I think that he would absolutely hammer him with the inside-out forehand. I'm feeling like with wood rackets giving all the same factors and everything like that, maybe one tight set, three, six, and one. But believe it or not, in this same matchup, I give Borg a way better chance if they played on grass. Because I think that now that maybe you're playing on the low-bouncing grass, and, and you know maybe with Borg's first serve, he could make a lot more progress on the Rafa return. But I, I do think that on clay that that there's just no way Borg would be able to stop the onslaught of Rafa's forehand. And I also think that his backhand to backhand, he, you know, I, I just think that bigger, stronger, physical, better mover as well. As much as I love Borg and want to tell you so that he'd have a shot, you know, wow, you're I don't saying like three straight and, sets. Well, I'd say, I, see, I disagree. I think that Borg was arguably faster than Nadal. Um, uh, as, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as good. Obviously, he's a little smaller, so you have to take that into account. But you know, I think that that that's changed over the years. I mean, Rocket Rod Laver is you know five seven, five eight. So uh, I'm 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 tossing. I'm not tossing that aside, but I'm not putting that as an as and important of a factor as you are, because I think it's the evolution of just the game and the athletes. But if you're talking about just pure speed, 
Uh, obviously, Nadal, you know, they're both amazing. Maybe I, I probably give the edge to Nadal as a competitor because he's, you know, he stayed in there longer. Borg, you know, when my brother started to beat, you know, beat him a couple of times, he sort of just, you know, quit basically at 25. Um, whereas, you know, Rafa's had to deal with, you know, some devastating losses and still come back and, you know, Djokovic beating him if, uh, um, in, in some epic matches as well. So I think Bo uh, Nadal may be a, a, a little stronger competitor, but I think this goes to distance on clay. I mean, I think it goes five. I hear what you're saying. I, I agree with you that in the midcourt, I think Nadal is a little bit better and take because, you know, partly because he has to be. He's learned how to move forward a little bit more. Um, Borg was a pretty a better volleyer on grass where he could just dump it short. Um, but I think you're underrating the speed of Borg. And I also think that Nadal wouldn't be getting as much whip with the forehand with the wood rack. No, I, don't. I mean, I totally, totally agree with everything. You know, I hear what you're saying. But Rafa, the only way you're going to be him on clay, you got to go big. You got to go bold. You got to go big and you got to take time away. And that wasn't Boris game to try to take time away from you. He would play back and he would lose. And I just think that Rafa, no matter who he's playing, if you give him balls, even, uh, even with a, you know, shoot, you give him a broomstick, you know, and you hit the ball, you know, on the service line to him, that's problem. All right, let's talk about um, if they played now, if Borg had, you know, he spent years playing on the wall too, as, as you did, as I did. Let's say Borg with his athleticism uh, and his big serve grew up with a with a, a Babolat or Wilson, you know, the one of the newer rackets with the, with the, with the, with the ability to swing the racket super hard with the strings. Um, and, and because I think he would have had a massive serve with that racket much bigger than Nadal's. And I think his forehand, I agree with you. I don't think it would have been quite as big as Rafa's uh, on with, with the new technology, but, but a lot bigger. Um, and I think his backhand would be better with that racket. So give it to me. You still think Nadal in straights with the new technology? I think that he, with the new technology, he would have had a better shot. He would have had like, you know that a huge serve for a guy like 5'10", maybe one of the biggest serves I've ever seen? Thomas Johansson, another sweet. Mm -hmm. So I think Borg, Borg would have been serving like 135. You know, he would have had, you know, a much bigger serve. Second serve would have been bigger, and he would have gotten a lot more balance off the ball. Um, so I definitely think that he would have uh, had a better shot. I also think that, you know, the backhand, where he would let go with that, um, it was kind of a one and a half. It wasn't really like a two. And I do think that Borg's lefty forehand to Borg's backhand where he let go with the hand would have been problematic. I'll give a Borg a set with the new modern mm -hmm. equipment because he's going to, you know, get a lot more free points off a of serve. Maybe that's going to be something like six, four, seven, five, three, six, seven, five. Interesting. A tight four setter with the modern equipment, okay. uh, but still Rafa bigger and stronger and just still like his ability to dominate from the midcourt area, I think is just an overlying factor. You know, one of the great clay court matches um, that I've seen, I know you saw it, was uh, a young Rafael Nadal in the Italian Open final against a guy named Guillermo 
Coria of Argentina. Now, the only reason I bring it up, I think it was a fifth set tie break, and Dal ended up winning it. Coria, uh, you know, lost in that crazy final um, of the French Open one year to Gaston Gaudio, and then, you know, it, the, that played tricks on his mind. He was never able to get back to it. But if you watch that match, Brad, as I know you've seen, to me, there's, I, there's yeah, a, was that 2005? Final? Yeah, I think it was 2005. A lot of similarities, I think. See, I I slightly disagree with you, but it, b- that. Borg couldn't have hung with Nadal in just sort of a normal clay court type of match because Coria did in that match. And Borg, to me, was a better version of Coria. Um, so I'm, I, I, I hear you giving the edge to Rafa. I'm just surprised it's that big of an edge. I remember that match because that's probably the last good match that Coria played because that was the year after the French and... You know, that match, you know, within two years of that, the guy was done. He couldn't serve. He got the yips on his serve. But, boy, he was quick. He, you know, it probably, you're right, probably wasn't as quick as Borg. We used the drop shot. Mm-hmm. He had a really, really good two-hander. Um, so, I mean, obviously, that Rafa then was, so he was 19. You right, know, he, young, yeah, right. he, did, he hadn't won his first friend. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and if you watch that match, his serve was like a hundred miles an hour. I mean, he, he got no free point. I mean, I just recently watched that match and it was like, I mean, it's amazing how many times Rafa's changed his serve. It. So, so there, there are so many variables, but that obviously at 19, he was coming, but True. that wasn't, right. that wasn't vintage. No doubt. Right. But I, I love thinking about these matches. I still will, you know, no matter all the variables that you're talking about, I still give Borg a better chance with wood rackets or modern equipment on grass than, than he would against clay because I think his serve and then, you know, the return, you know, wouldn't be as much of a factor, especially on hurting him on the second serve, which would be a problem maybe on the clay. Yeah, and also Borg, as you said, bigger serve and, you know, he quicker little steps. Maybe Nadal could cover more territory with his size and his sliding ability, but Borg, you know, he won five Wimbledons, Nadal's won two. So I think I agree with you. You got to give him the edge on grass for sure to Borg, to the sweet. I think his, I think overall his movement, Brad, because of those quick little steps, he, you know, he moved more like Federer did on grass than, um, than, than, uh, than Nadal. So uh, to me, that would you'd be a huge difference. And obviously, hard court, you'd have to give the edge to uh, Mr. Nadal. Yeah, uh, the one thing about Borg that I can remember, remember back in the day, you didn't get TV, you know, tennis on TV, and you didn't get the steady guys. And, you know, it's not like a lot of YouTube from back then. Uh, Borg had amazing balance. That's what made him so fast on the court. There's guys that are incredibly fast, but if you don't have the balance, um, you're, you're not as efficient. And Borg was an incredibly, like, still easy mover. And you just looked up and, geez, he just went from side to side. He was a great mover. Um, I do think that, that the size, you know, you know, I know that under six feet, you know, it, then wasn't as much of it is today because we haven't had anybody win a slam under six feet tall now since 2004. Well, you know, it's been a while. Gaudio is the last one. Um, and, and obviously the last two greats, you know, obviously McEnroe, Borg, Andre, 
but we've gone to bigger guys. You, that's the one mm-hmm. thing, if you go back in time, you can't make somebody that's smaller bigger. Great point. So that is the one thing that I think is, you know, for me that sticks out a little bit. Um, but it's one of those great fascinating matches, you know, to, to, to think about because he was, he, dom- he every bit dominated like Rafa did in his time on the clip. Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, uh, BG, this has been unbelievable. Uh, of course, the time has flown by. I try to keep these to like 20 to 25 minutes. We've already gone almost 30. I knew that would happen with my main man, <laughs> BG. Winning Uglier is the name of BG's podcast. I'm hoping. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate I- it. We'll have you on my podcast, and I look forward to seeing you this weekend. We'll actually be calling yep. some live tennis. And the one, and the one thing I want to leave our our my listeners with, and our fan, because you got the same fans that I do. I want you to tell me the next matchup that you want to discuss with me. We could do it on my podcast. We could do it on your podcast. What matchup, two players, different eras, do you want to break down next? So, like, you want to go like you know few generations back whatever you want you could could be could be Sampras Federer both in their prime on grass Wimbledon final you tell me it could be Lendl versus well, I, I, you know. I, I'd like to see your brother versus Fed on grass because you know it's easier to go to Pete but that's that's too close so I like going 80s to the 20s so okay. that's a good one right. I'd like to see Lendo Djokovic Ooh. on hardcore Ooh, in Australia yeah, in yeah. 110 degree heat. Oh, now you're talking my language. I love it. The one and only Brad Gilbert. Everyone can't wait to see you in person in a few days, BG. Thanks for coming on. Cheers, buddy. You got it. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.